Hello, everyone. It's me, Sophia Amoruso, the host of Girl Boss Radio. Welcome back. It's another week. If you don't know who I am, I'm the founder of Nasty Gal, the author of Girl Boss, the founder of whatever Girl Boss is becoming. I'm your host. And uh, I also wrote a book called Nasty Galaxy, which came out a few weeks ago. So that's pretty cool. On this podcast, I interview a different woman each week who I admire, who's doing something exciting, admirable, brave, and has something to share. We chart her story from the very beginning, what her first job was, what she's learned along the way, and hope to extract bits of advice that will help you live your life better. Today's guest is my dear friend, Anne Fullenweider, who is a force in the publishing world. After graduating from Harvard University, she moved to New York and learned the ins and outs of journalism and publishing under the tutelage of George Plimpton at the Paris Review. Fancy. She continued to work alongside the greats, including Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair, where she launched the fanfare section of the magazine, and Joanna Coles at Marie Claire as their executive editor. In 2011, Anne left Marie Claire to become the editor-in-chief of Brides, where she completely revamped the brand to expand its reader base, make it bi-monthly, do all kinds of cool stuff. But ultimately, she couldn't stay away from Marie Claire for long. She returned to the magazine as their editor-in-chief, where she is today, and continues to push the brand to speak to today's modern women with its in-depth reporting, fashion guides, and entertaining and informative features. I'm so thrilled Anne could join us from our studios in New York. And thank you for being on Girl Boss Radio. Thanks for having me, Sophie. I'm really yeah. excited to be here. I know. It's nice to just catch up with you. It's like a, you know, like an hour-long phone call. Like, when do I ever get It's such a luxury. that. Yeah. And so when I have the, this beautiful November issue in front of me with Nicki Minaj, who's never looked better. Oh, thank um, you. I love that cover. Yeah. She um, really brought it to that photo shoot. Yeah. And the power issue. She's, yeah, a good choice. Um, yeah, we love her. Very powerful woman. Yeah. And I guess I just want to jump to the beginning. And what was your first job? So my very first job was um, being a waitress probably in college. (laughs) Maybe even before that. that? And um, actually, I think I was at a vegetable stand for a little bit before that. But being a waitress is a really – I don't know if you've ever waited tables, but it is an eye-opening experience. Um, I lasted a day. I I, um, definitely – I mean, I liked I like working. I like making money. I've always thought it was really uh, exciting to be paid for your work. So, um, but being a waitress was really exhausting, and I was also studying. And it was in Harvard Square, where there were a lot of um, tourists and just a lot of people. I remember one guy yelling at me because I had not described the chicken skewers in the right size. He thought they were small, and um, oh god, just like really, really pissed at oh. me. And then you're like, what is my life? Like, I'm being yelled at about chicken skewers. Like, I know those moments that are just like, how is this really my life? Like, is this all that it's going to be cracked up to be? I have such respect for anyone in the service industry because you just take a lot of crap. Um, And But I found it really grounding because I thought college was uh, bewildering. So, you know, I didn't really even know what I wanted to study or what I wanted to do, really. I was vaguely interested in publishing. I had been editor of my high school newspaper. Um, But I found it just bewildering. The whole four years, I was sort of like, what am I supposed to be getting out of this? And what am I doing here? And so in some ways, being a waitress was really just grounding. It was like, you're supposed to bring the food from here to here. You're supposed to take the order. It was There was something kind of comforting about it, too. Mm-hmm. Wait, um, why was college bewildering? Uh I think that I was surround. I felt like I was surrounded by people who really 
knew exactly what they wanted to do with their lives. And I was more interested in exploring and trying out different things. And it really took me until my senior year to feel like I was taking advantage of it and getting enough out of it and um, to get really inspired by what I was studying. It was really when I started writing a thesis. So what came together your senior year? Because your your resume reads like someone who really knew what they wanted to do. And it seems like it all kind of snapped into place for you. How did that happen? I would say um, it's so funny because it's true. When you look back at things and you look especially at, at people's careers, the way you do and the way we do at Mary Claire, mm-hmm. is that it all seems inevitable like it was meant to be and that this what this step inevitably led to this step and this one to this one. And really, um, I was for certainly the four years of college, I was sort of looking for my people. And when I finally found them, it turns out they were on the literary magazine. And I just finally felt like I'd found a home there and that I was really inspired by the intellectual conversations going on around storytelling. And that is really where I began to realize that I had to make a career out of storytelling, or at least that what I wanted to do next was continue after college to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And you went to a great place for that. So your first job out of college was an internship, right? Yeah. So actually, I don't remember what it reads on my resume, but certainly the first, the actual first job I got was a paid internship working for David Lauren, who was starting a magazine or had started a magazine called Swing. It doesn't Mm -hmm. exist anymore. And it sounds very obvious now, but it was at the time kind of intriguing. It was by, for, and about 20-somethings. The term millennial didn't exist. And this was really a novel concept at the time. So I went there. No one there was over 30 years old. No one really knew what we were doing. I mean, now it's totally commonplace to read about people like you or Mark Zuckerberg or people who have completely radicalized and disrupted an industry by age 27. But (laughs) then it was really odd to be in a room of only 20-somethings and be given the reins of this magazine and be told, you guys can do whatever you want. Um, That's so cool. It was great. I had no idea what I was doing. I got paid like minimum wage, and I was like in charge of opening all the products And I remember thinking like, huh, some of these are pretty cool. So I went to David and I said, let's do a product page. And it sounds really simple now. But at the time, it was really exciting to have like a page that I was in charge of. Um, And I got paid, which again was very exciting. I know. I know. (laughs) I feel like more and more internships are paid because people started like grumbling at like unpaid internships. And then it was just like, oh, God, we should just pay everybody, right? Yeah. It's funny, though, because I think part of it is that there were some, I guess, I don't know, the idea is that when you're unpaid, you should actually be getting something out of the job because you're yeah. not being paid. So you should learn something. And the, fu- the funny thing is that once you pay someone, you don't have to worry about whether or not they're learning something. So in a way, you get paid for more grunt work than... I know. <laughs> than, I know. It's not cool. paid for, right? So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, it wasn't like that much longer after that that I got an internship at the Parish Review, which... Um, somehow there was like a flyer in the Harvard Literary Magazine office. This is why people say, like, you know, if you go to the right college, it really hooks you up. The single most valuable thing that came out of Harvard for me mm-hmm. was this, like, poster on the wall, a little flyer that said, um, the Paris Review is looking for interns. Here's the number. There was no um, email then. So it was like mm-hmm. I had to write a letter. And... Um, it didn't pan out at first. So I was working at the David Lauren magazine, which was really fun. But then when the Paris Review did say that they had an internship available, I um, quickly ran over there and, and took it. What do you think your letter said? Do you remember? So I think my letter said something like, I've always been a fan of the Paris Review and I love fiction. And I was on the literary magazine in college. And 
um, I'd love to interview with you. Something like that. Anyway, I found myself being interviewed by these two super cool, like, East Village punks on, like, this beautiful sort of chintz couch on the Upper East Side. It was so funny. It was like George Plimpton and all his sort of Upper East Side glory. And it turns out his literary magazine was run by these really cool, alternative, East Village people with nose rings. And it's just a whole different world from what I expected. Have you ever written fiction? I took a creative writing class in college. But, you know, I did I did take a fiction class, but it turns out everything I was writing was really based in reality and completely just very thinly veiled version of my own life. So I really gravitated towards the creative nonfiction classes, which were – actually, that's where I discovered Joan Didion and her book, mm-hmm. Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which is really my favorite book in the whole world and mm-hmm. kind of set me on my course of yeah. like, I want to I do that or I want to be around that or I want to talk to people like that. I want to be her. <laughs> yeah, I know. I still want to be her. I mean, I definitely came to New York to try to be Joan Didion. And Have you ever interviewed her? Because she's out there a little bit. She's still around. Not yeah, much, it's true. But... In fact, when I was working for George Flimpton, he was doing a book about Truman Capote that he'd been working on for a long, long time. And um, so I helped him finish that Truman Capote book. And one of the things that I had to do was go back to all the people he had interviewed and show them what they were it was very nice of him. He was showing them their their cuts of what he was quoting them, and they had to correct or change. And so I got to walk um, Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn's transcripts over to them because they lived pretty close to George somewhere in oh, the wow. 70s. And, um, and he was still alive then. And I, it was like the most thrilling 30 minutes of my life, just going to their apartment, saying, speaking with them briefly, handing them the transcripts, and then sitting there and watching them edit with their pencils, uh-huh. what they wanted to say. And, um, you know, I was 23 years old. I was floored. Yeah. How did you get out of the internship purgatory? That is such say. a good word. That's such yeah. a true. There's the internship purgatory and there's the assistant purgatory, right? Uh-huh. I know. And you have to like actively try to get out of both of them sort of mm-hmm. after a year. <clears throat> how so, did you actively, yeah, how did you do that? So it's funny. This has happened to me twice in my life. Um I was an intern at the Paris Review the summer of 95, and somewhere around the 4th of July, maybe a little before then, there were only four full-time employees. And within my first month, three of the full-time employees quit. So I just raised my hand. I mean, there weren't a lot of interns <laughs> anyway, but there was it was such a small little place, and there wasn't, it, you know, nowhere else would you probably get the chance to go from intern to senior editor in a day. But I, um, uh, it was that kind of place, and I definitely sort of, raised my hand and said, hey, I'd love one of those jobs. And I think I interviewed again with George. I was terrified of George. And, uh, aren't, and I got Aren't him. really, like, educated people scary? I mean, you're really educated, but I find... I don't I think I'm scary. Like, and I'm not... You're I mean, not scary. You're not. <laughs> okay. But also, but George was also... You know, it's sort of like the boss in every... I'm sure you're... Um, team feels in some way that's about you. Just the boss is a little bit scary. It's just sort of think, built into yeah. the job. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, but he also was like, you know, seven feet tall and had this very, very locked jaw accent. And it turns out he's a lot of fun and has a big heart and a huge amount of curiosity, which was one of the biggest things I learned from him is how important it is to stay curious. Um, yeah. But and so it was great. But I definitely those first few weeks were terrifying. Yeah, I bet. And so, but then you've also worked for Vanity Fair. You worked for Vanity Fair for ten years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I know it flew and, by. In your kind of formative years in publishing, what did, what do you think you learned that prepared you ultimately to become an editor in chief? 
I mean, working at Vanity Fair for 10 years was such a great experience. It prepared me for a ton of things. It was working at Vanity Fair demanded excellence. It demanded a level of professionalism that was really helpful throughout the rest of my life. It turns out, um, you know, all of these creative and fascinating writers and photographers. And it was really a Graydon used to always say that he edited the magazine like he wanted, like he was throwing a dinner party and he wanted mm-hmm. to have a really interesting group of people around all the time. And by around, he meant in the magazine. So, you know, he would edit it thinking that way. I've taken a lot of lessons from the way that he edited Vanity Fair. That's so cool. I think I learned that there's a real art to telling a story. And if you give it enough attention and um, respect and uh, enough space in your magazine, it can really be transformative and exciting. Mm-hmm. So we had Jessica Bennett on the podcast a few weeks ago. She worked at Newsweek for a while and mm-hmm. had, you know, she's wrote a book called Feminist Fight Club. Mm. I love and, Jessica. Yeah. yeah, she's amazing. And so she was talking, you know, just about her experience in publishing and that it's kind of like a man's world. And, you know, she was at a different publication, but you've been at a variety of publications. Is that anything that you've experienced? And mm. What advice would you have for a girl who, you know, is in the workplace and maybe dealing with that? It's funny because I definitely, even just in speaking about it now, realizing it's so old school. My my first 10 years in the business were so sort of like actually kind of a throwback to the 60s where it was like uh-huh. Truma Capote was an interesting person to care. Like everyone was weird writing about Babe Haley and fabulous parties in the 1960s in New York City. It was so, It was already a throwback. And then it was also a bit of a completely different era from right now. I mean, the world of Mary Claire, and the reason I found Mary Claire so refreshing is it's about women. It's about getting by on your merit and your hard work. And it's not about old money and fabulous families. And it's really, the whole world has changed. Mm -hmm. So, and yet, yeah, there are a lot of men. And and I worked for a lot of men. The first time I worked for a woman was working for Joanna Coles when she was editor of Mary Claire. And Mm -hmm. she had a really refreshing, different way of running a magazine and really of looking at the world in terms of like, that's an interesting story. That's an interesting story. Like, hmm, we had this whole brand of story called this funny thing happened to me or this crazy thing happened to me. And it was all about women's experiences around the world. I remember there's an amazing story about a woman who, um, she worked for ESPN and she was on vacation in Spain, I think. And she went on a date and the guy ended up like locking her in his bedroom and trying to attack her. And she fought her way like tooth and nail, beat him up or, you know, got into a fist fight with him and climbed out of the window and ran across the rooftops of um, oh my God. Madrid. It was this incredibly dramatic story. And it's something that never would have made its way into the other magazines I worked for. Yeah. <laughs> but the, just the whole idea that a woman in her 20s experience is fascinating and legitimate and worth a ton of um, attention and photographs and words. It was really, it was totally life-changing for me. So I think publishing is completely evolving and certainly, you know, things like podcasts. And I mean, it's the understatement of the century to say that the world has changed since 1995. But um, it's like a whole... No, but it's a, I mean, in your world, that's the only conversation that's happening is, you know, media is evolving. You know, there's so much digital. There's different ways to distribute stuff. There's Mm -hmm. the advertisers are, you know... They want different things and to prove the ROI on their spend in different yeah. ways. And yes. Yes. And a lot of us find it. I mean, a lot of people in the industry are talking about that and finding it a little worrisome or bewildering or, you know, just change has a lot of different effects. Uh, you know, some people get scared with change. But I really honestly believe that all of this disruption, to use an overused word, but all of this change in the way stories are getting out there is really great for women, for 
people of, mm-hmm. you know, who may not be privileged or educated, but also fascinating and want to tell a story. I think it's so great. It's really helped the world evolve past the idea that you have to be, you know, a 65-year-old white man to run a magazine. Mm-hmm. Among other things, I mean, just the idea that you and I can sit here and talk about all the great women we know who've done great things in the world and how they started off, and that, that you have this podcast. It's like it really is changing the world, and it sounds really no. earnest for me to say that, but I really have seen the change, and I believe it, and I think it's good. How would you say the magazine has evolved since you joined uh, Marie Claire? I mean, because it seems that women's magazines are a lot more multidimensional today than they used to be, or I may just have like been a kid and not understood the grown-up stuff when I was reading you know, magazines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I certainly think that, like, when I was reading magazines in the 80s, there was definitely a lot of talk about women and career. It was new then, right? And it was like the working girl, mm-hmm. the Melanie Griffith movie I'm talking about, and the shoulder pads and the um, women wearing ties to work. And it was, there was, I think that women's magazines actually have always contributed amazing things to the culture um, and smart things and have, described to the culture what it's like to be a woman at various points throughout history. But mm-hmm. I'm really, I feel lucky that I got to be at Mary Claire. It was really, you know, one of those, you never know where you're going to end up. But Mary Claire has always had in its DNA this real bent on international reporting and women's rights. And they've mm-hmm. always been a pro-choice magazine. Um, and there's, you know, it was founded in 1937 in France by a single mom. And it now has 34 international editions around the world. So there's a really sort of global-minded woman at the center of the magazine, wherever you are. And I do really believe, I, I grew up reading all the women's magazines. I like a lot of them. Some of them, are, there's a once in a while when a women's magazine and you, and I'm sure wherever this, just maybe in the past, that sort of a cringy, like, look good for your man or something mm-hmm. so dated. But Mary Claire has really always had a feminist bend and I've gravitated towards it. I mean, I really yeah, ended up so cool. there by luck, but it's a really cool brand to be a part of. Yeah. And it's really, I think... A natural part of this growing, growing conversations. I mean, I've been editor-in-chief for a little over four years. And even when I was executive editor starting seven years ago, when we brought the career conversation back into the magazine, it was a lot of women's magazines had drifted away from that. Mm-hmm. So we kind of really created this work section and career section and have continued to really sort of send reporters out to the middle of the world. And we have a great reporter for Mary Claire U.S., who's in Bangkok, and she always is coming up with amazing stories about women wow. around the world. So I don't know if that answers your question, but... No, 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 it does. Uh, yeah. You have to make so many decisions, you know, as an editor-in-chief. And, I mean, I'm sure it's like an age-old process, you know, what gets into the magazine, what what doesn't get into the magazine. How do you guys... Are there pitch meetings? Like, what is the process of developing an issue of Mary Claire? So I like to think I have a system and then inevitably it completely <laughs> it's always different from but at least you have a structure to start from, right? So we have we have pitch meetings, we have we try to have them once a month. Um and inevitably stories get in from all over the place. I mean, I could get a story idea at a cocktail party, someone can email me, or one of the editors can be out we can have be having a conversation in the hallway about something that somebody did last night and we're like, oh yeah, that's really happening a lot. Like people are, you know, we did a story a couple of years ago that I loved about ayahuasca, which is this, mm-hmm. you know, about ayahuasca. It's very LA, mm-hmm. right? Um, <laughs> this yeah. like exploratory sort of hallucinogenic shrub from Peru that, I don't know, changed your life. It, it sounded fascinating, but terrifying to me, but it was a really cool, that came out of someone's conversation that someone she knew was doing it and had 
She'd done it in Peru with a shaman, and it changed her life. And she'd moved her whole family to Ibiza. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but so Sounds you know, great. story ideas, literally. Yeah, well, I'll send you the article. It's, I, I love it. I need to do some of that. Yeah, um, they say it's like move. ten years of therapy in twenty-four hours. Um, I know. There's a lot of throwing up and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And you usually have to do it around other people and that just both of those things just sounds like being in like a hut throwing up with strangers sounds Mm -hmm. like my hell. I also have always been afraid of just the whole idea of tripping. It's just not something that's appealed to me because just just being stuck in it, not being able to be like, okay, I'm just going to sober up now. But anyway, that story came out of a conversation that we were having in the hallway. I think, Mm -hmm. but generally I have four features editors. We have a features meeting. I bring the beauty director and her editor because they're really smart and have all sorts of great ideas. And um, we just, I go around the table, I ask them to each bring two ideas and hopefully it evolves into a conversation about, well, that, you know, for example, when I first got there, it was the 50, the 50th anniversary of Equal Pay was coming up and um, someone brought it up and I was like, okay, I definitely, we have to cover that. The Equal Pay Act, I think JFK signed. And I just said, listen, I just, one of the main things about Mary Claire is I wanted to be not the expected, not the like, and it's very valuable to say that women don't get paid as much because they don't negotiate for raises as well. But it's been said a ton. All of the women's magazines are saying that now. So really, what else can we bring to this conversation? Because I guarantee most of our readers have heard that once before. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of value in repetition. But in terms of intriguing them and bringing them into the magazine and having them read this whole story, I want to do something surprising. So the pitches are the beginning of a conversation. And then um, the editors go off and the writers write things and they come back to me and like, a month, six weeks, sometimes six months. And that's how we get the features, which are the more journalistic part of the magazine. But then the fashion part of the magazine is a whole other operation where we go to Europe and see the shows and our fashion editors come back with ideas and wildly creative people who create these amazing um, photo spreads and ideas and videos that we do. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a, what I love about a magazine is it's incredibly collaborative. I could not mm-hmm. just go into a room and do it myself. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of teams and just hiring, you know, what do you look for when you bring someone onto the Mary Claire team? What are you looking for? I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it, which is like what people say. Really? About. But I, there's definitely a Mary Claire spirit. Um, You're like, I like you. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I like people who are curious, who yeah. are ready to roll up their sleeves and dig in, um, who are you know, who I can have an interesting conversation with, actually, is really what I'm looking for in an interview. I try to, like, immediately dispel, kind of, you know, try to put people at ease so that I can get, because it's really hard in half an hour to get the real sense of who someone is. Um, mm-hmm. But I look for someone who can collaborate, who doesn't have a huge amount of ego, who's not, like, all about me, 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 you know, mm-hmm. uh, who's not looking to make themselves a star within the magazine. That said, we have tons of stars, and we have tons of people who um, are really enthusiastic about Mary Claire's view on the world, and I look for sort of this. Uh, how do we? How do you nail it? Like the the sense that this person's really going to see something through and make it great, or come to something, any project that they're coming to, and make it better. Do you? Because I've experienced this, and I this is not like a formal like philosophy or thought, but um, I feel like there's like a schism among generations in some way. Um, where there's this like up and coming, you know, early 20s, you know, kids, a lot of the girls listening to this podcast and boys mm-hmm. um, who are really impatient and mm-hmm. who, you know, want to have an amazing career, um, who are comfortable freelancing or starting their own business. Um, and there's a lot of job hopping mm-hmm. um, and just generally a lot of like impatience and unrest, but also a lot of talent. 
Is that something that you've encountered at Mary Claire and have to manage with your workforce? And how do you manage that? And what advice would you have to to that generation who um, is coming to you maybe asking for like a raise after like three months or something? Because like that happens. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I remember. I do feel like I, I remember the impatience of being 22 years old and getting to New York and like looking around and being like, wait a minute, but I want to, I want to do something. I want to be something and being offered these jobs where it was like, how fast can you type? And do you answer phones? And I, I don't really think it's generational. I just think that social media and the internet have sped things up so that we're all aware. We're more aware of how everyone's feeling. So I remember just walking around New York City and just being so frustrated that I couldn't get to where I wanted to be professionally, like in a day or in six months. Um, and I remember one person telling, I said, well, how do you, you know, how can you get, I wanted to write for magazines. How do you get an assignment? And one friend of ours, um, who was like 10 years older than me and who wrote for a bunch of women's magazines, he said, you know, honestly, you just have to wait. And some of your <laughs> friends will eventually become editors and they'll assign you stories. <laughs> it was like the most unprofessional, non-job-like thing I'd ever heard. I was like, what do you mean just wait and wait till my friends can do me favors? That sounds insane. But in some ways, he was kind of right. Um, I think that you know, what we encounter at Mary Claire is because we are an office full of young women, I, mean, I think I'd say the majority of our editors are under, or everyone on our staff is really under 34, except for me and a few other people. Um, so we're a place where a lot of people come, we're a lot of people's first job. They maybe put in two years. Some of them stay much longer, but, and a lot of people love the magazine, but it's a great place to test yourself and learn some skills. And we have, you know, a lot of great people who come to us for two years and then are ready to move on to the next thing. And I think that, you know, A, from a management point of view, it's just tough to keep cohesion. But we've, Mm -hmm. I think, come into a good groove where we have a a very strong ethos. We have a very strong set of uh, beliefs and principles and, I guess, set of rules, really, of what Mary Claire is. So that we, Mm -hmm. it's just very easy to say, like, that's not a Mary Claire thing and that is. So, it's, it's we're more flexible when we have when we experience staff changing, and That's we're more great. able to weather it. That that said, I think from the point of view like how do I advise these girls when they come say, you know, I want to move on or I want a promotion or I want this. I mean, sometimes the answer is just kind of like we'll keep doing a great job. We really believe in you. I don't have the budget right now, or um, you know, you haven't been here a year or you've been here a year and a half, and we love we want to grow you. We want to work with you. We want to develop your skill set. Um, I mean, I really believe in that. I think I was mm-hmm. thrown into a few jobs where I honestly had no idea what I was doing. And there wasn't mm-hmm. – it was sort of trial by fire. It was a little bit like figure Isn't it out. Isn't that the best though? Do you feel like that's maybe the best in some ways to just be buried in, in information that you can't understand and then have to find your way out? I mean it worked for me, right? I yeah. think it's <laughs> worked for me. but It's I not the th- ideal work environment. <laughs> I think in terms of like just retaining people. Um, mm-hmm. that you want them to feel like they're believed in if they're good. I mean, sometimes, yeah. you know, I'm not going to – once or twice someone has come to me and said, I've got a new opportunity. I want to move on. And I just think, okay, great. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. I mean, to be frank. Uh-huh. But I think that um, I want the environment that I am creating at Mary Claire to be a supportive one that is also competitive. Like we're here to do a job. We are in a business. We need to be the best that we can be. And if you're game, we'll show you how to do that. We'll help you become the best you can be or the best you can be for us. You know, you might want to start a swimsuit line on the side or write a book or do a podcast. And all that is great. I encourage that just as long as you're doing what you need to do for us. 
And so you mentioned your friends, like friends, you know, eventually, like, you know, I mean, that really just sounds like having a network. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, as someone who started a company behind a computer, I always thought that networking was really creepy and the word was creepy and it just meant like you're making friends because they can do things for you. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, many years later, I've been exposed to so many amazing people and um, really enjoy like meeting all walks of life and find something to learn from everybody that I meet and have had incredible things happen as a result of my the network that I didn't even mean to create. Mm-hmm. Um, I think once you get rid of that word, it becomes a lot I'm totally with you. Too. I mean, I said this before, but I hate the word networking, and I really was it's allergic to the idea gross. too. It just seems so transactional, and so it seems uh, inauthentic. Really, it mm-hmm. just I mean, whereas I I agree, I've I have sort of built an accidental network by way. Partly just it's necessary for my job. I literally yeah. just go and meet different people every day. It's part of what I do. Um, I And I think if you're curious and genuine about, you know, it's not any a surprise to anyone that I'm meeting or talking to people who, A, could either contribute to the magazine or help the magazine or advertise in the magazine or make a connection for us. I don't think that... Um, that that's gross. It's just what my job is. I think that the really sort of... The, the world is based on relationships. You will yes. get more if you give more. That's it. And I think that's like a totally natural and positive thing. People yes. want to see your face. And and once they see your face, they trust you and you're not like some person asking for like advertising money. You're like, no, no, we have something special here. Yeah. Um, let me, you know. And I think as you know, I, I am absolutely, I was a shy kid. I'm technically, I've learned and it's become a very big buzzword, but I'm definitely an introvert. Um I just know that as an introvert, it is every single day that I have a meeting, and that's every day, Monday through Friday, I have a little tiny bit of me that's like, oh, I just want to stay here and finish this, reading this story. You know, I just have a little bit of that, that I have to overcome every couple of hours, really. You know, like, um, and then the thing is, when I go out to that lunch or I head to the cocktail party for 20 minutes, and cocktail parties are the hardest, I would say, but... um, Mm-hmm. Or I go to that like meeting. I could be home right now. Yeah, I really feel like that. But yeah, I, you know, I also enjoy a cocktail once in a while, so it's fine. But totally. Um, but that said, every, almost every single time I've gone out there, that's when I get the most inspired, the most creative, the most ideas. You know, I don't get that many ideas sitting behind my desk in my office. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly part of my job that I have to be there too. But the networking part, for lack of a better word, although there are better words, meeting people, gaining insight, um, connecting. There are a lot yeah. of better words. It's literally the word network with an ing at the end. It's like I am I am like building a network. Yes. You know what I – it's so like – I totally agree. I, I 100% agree with you. And it, <laughs> I've even given events. I think you spoke at an event that we had that was all about networking. But I – Was I'm, that what that was about? <laughs> the first event that I ever came to? I think so. We definitely did a like pow- the power of networking. With Natalie Morales and um, – Yes, and Sally Krawcheck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was well. Sally Krawcheck speaks very, I think, pretty well about the value of networking and how to do it. But it's, Sally Krawcheck it is, is just amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. done so much about women and money, which I really I believe know. in. I love what she's doing with Elevest. Yeah, um, and I think that you can't talk to women enough about like being financially independent and understanding your money and figuring. You know, I just think that's. I know. We had a couple episodes about that with Prudential and people just like ate it up. And yeah, it's like you you either learn the hard way or hopefully you stumble across, you know, something in Mary Claire or maybe something on 
on this podcast that makes you be like, oh, my gosh, really? The bills will just keep following me and pile up? Oh, (laughs) all of that. All of that. (laughs) Oh, I I should have a credit card because no one will ever, like, let me lease a car if I don't? Like, wait, I'm penalized for not having credit? Yeah. it's And people don't talk to – I mean, now people are. Uh You are and we are and Sally Krawcheck is. But educating women about money and also just being literate in that stuff, it's so important. I can't – it's just – and I really feel like even no matter what, if you think there's some trust fund out there or a guy is going to save you or Nicki Minaj says this really well in our issue, oh, yeah? um, the November issue, just no matter what you think is going to happen to your financial stability or, you know, you want to make it or you think someone else is going to do it for you, you just always want to be able to have your own money and just have your own um, your independence. And she talks about the fact that she sees a lot of women now, young women who just want to marry some rich guy. And that she said, even if you do marry a rich guy, you have a totally different relationship with him if you have your own money. Yeah. It's just... You want to be able to leave a relationship at any moment. And once you remove that option for yourself economically, then I think it's really easy to accept less than what you deserve. Yeah, completely. Yeah. You were talking about being the face of of the magazine and, you know, I've been to events, you know, that you've put on and there's so – I know there's so much of that in your world and you've had to learn how to do public speaking and, you know, as mm-hmm. as a self-confessed introvert, you know, has that been challenging for you? A hundred percent. Was there like an experience <laughs> you can recall that yep. was really challenging? How have you – have you how have you gotten better at that? I mean, obviously time – and experience Mm -hmm. but um i have to say in all the time that i wanted to be editing my high school newspaper or writing or being joe didion or just pursuing publishing (laughs) it just never occurred to me that public speaking was going to be part of that job at any time it just wasn't the reason i got into it i sort of turned Uh around and it was really the first time i was editor-in-chief which was editor-in-chief of brides magazine where all of a sudden i had to get up and i had to travel around the country and i had to wake up at dawn in some random hotel room in chicago and go talk about my vision to a room of like 150 advertisers or for brand building i had to go speak at a conference that was a really great conference actually um but um, the first time that I got up in front of a room of 200 advertisers and talked about my vision for Brides Magazine, which I was really proud of and I was really excited to do, and I knew what we were doing and I had the photos and the layouts to show, and I just thought, you know, I got this. I know what I'm talking about. And it was 8 a.m., and it was a breakfast in Manhattan, and I had I live in Brooklyn. I actually spent the night in a hotel in Manhattan, got my hair and makeup done at 6 a.m., and I stood up in front of this crowd and my mouth went totally dry. And I got through it. I mean, it was, I literally had like 10 minutes of material and they were expecting like a 45 minute talk. And I just remember thinking like, oh my God, I should have prepared. I should know this. I should, you know, just, and from then on, really, I wouldn't say that the next time I did it, it was spot, you know, perfect at all. But I just realized right then I had to, this is a skill I had to learn. I had to practice. I had to prepare. I've met with countless media trainers, some good, some not good. Um, but honestly, I, send me some names. <laughs> I, will. I will. It's important. Like a good one really changes the game. I but, only do Q&As and it's like you can't control the conversation when you do Q&A. I know that getting up and just babbling is not natural. Yeah. I mean, and I've seen even really great actors and actresses who, because they don't have lines, you know, it's just every single scenario, whether you're doing a TV you know, morning show or you're standing up, like doing a TV morning show, 
Actually, I think Mika Brzezinski said this. It's something I saw her speak. Like doing a TV show is actually, you're just looking at a camera. There's like five people in the room. And sure, if you think big picture about like the millions of people you may be reaching, that could be a little paralyzing. But actually, each person who's watching TV is watching it for the most part, like alone in their kitchen or sitting on a couch with their boyfriend or it's actually a pretty intimate medium. But whereas mm-hmm. standing and so she's like, I got that. I can do that. I do that every morning when I have to stand up in front of 200 people is when I get nervous. So every single, you know, sitting and doing the podcast is a different form from, you know, doing doing these presentations I have to do, which is not, I do a lot less of them now. But I have to say, I learned that I had to prepare. I had to practice and stand in front of the mirror and talk. And mm-hmm. I mean, and some people say that women focus too much on preparation in general and that men feel like they can wing it. But I have to say, when I prepare and know what I'm doing and have, like know how much time there is, know what the chair is going to be like, know what mm-hmm. the which door I'm entering from, all of that. Once I have all that, then I'm totally comfortable and I feel like I can wing it because I've got things to draw on. I've got, you know, a couple talking points in my mind or I've got even the like, whole paragraphs memorized if I need to. Um, so I just, I mean, whew, that was yeah. like a real... Totally. Learning curve for me. Is it fair to say, because I feel like I've experienced this, and I think a lot of people experience this, and when you're building your career and there's a destination, like, I want to be editor-in-chief, I want to be the founder of a fashion company or whatever it may be, that even when you get what you want, you find yourself with things that you didn't expect, like public speaking, you know, and that's the same. That's one of the things that is the same for me that has been a challenge. I mean, the list is endless, you know. Do you you feel like there's like a little bit of humility in having to accept that like even when you get the job that you want, it's like never exactly what you think it's going to be. I just want our listeners to know that like the destination is never like as glorious as you think it's going to be. And I think that's like – I think people should talk about that um, Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, you think you start a company 10 years later, you're just going to be sitting on a beach. No, actually, it's just (laughs) like it's still really hard. (laughs) Yes. I talk about this all the time. Actually, my managing editor who's like sort of, you know, for people who don't know how magazines work, it's like having a COO or like someone who's director of operations. Like she's my Mm – she sort of like makes the trains run on time. And I was talking to her about the fact that the higher you get up on the masthead, which is like the higher you get up in the company – the less you can just leave it alone when you leave at six o'clock. Like the buck stops with you. So if there's something wrong or that's not working, it's really up to you to do it. And so if you got to, you know, either I don't leave till it's done or or at least find the right person to help you do it. Or, I mean, it's it's the bigger the job gets, the bigger the job is, right? So I, um, mm-hmm. I definitely find that like one of the, so I always want to be editor-in-chief. I don't really know why I always want to be editor-in-chief. I wanted to be, the boss. I like mm-hmm. I like being in charge. Um, <laughs> and it's sort of from, I really had to, I looked up at other people. Like it was, I didn't have mentors, but I had role models where I just saw what people were doing. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. That looks good. I want that job. Um, but I had no idea, like when I got here, that it was a lot of it was going to be management. Like, you know, people coming in and having their problems and issues with the workplace, which of course are completely natural in every, any workplace. But I just didn't know that I was going to be the one to really be the one who resolves them. So there's a ton of art. Like when I got to, I remember my first year at Brides, I was like, wow. I mean, granted, 
it was a very different subject matter than I ever worked with before, except for my own wedding, but that's different. But I was like, wow, I, if I had to divide up my time for the year that I was at Rise Magazine, it would be like 30% content, 30% dealing with corporate, and mm-hmm. 40% going out on the road and meeting with advertisers and being the face of the brand. And it was so different from what I expected because every job I had up until that point had always been about content. And that's all, mm-hmm. which was my favorite part, which is why I wanted to like get the biggest job in that arena and it was a total shock to me yeah i bet you become like involved with every piece of of the business i'm sure and that's what you'd want i mean when you're when you have like the highest title it's like the last thing you want is other people inside the organization to be like wheeling and dealing and yeah you show up and have to fulfill on those obligations you know right you absolutely want like i just always want full transparency i wanted to know what every meeting was about but yet it's also been i'm a bit of a control freak and a little bit ocd and i have had to do some letting go like yeah you know what i'm just gonna i this person is really good at their job and that person's gonna be in charge of the details of that particular operation that fashion shoot or you know i'm not gonna be at every photo shoot so i've got to hire the best people i can find and really trust them i mean and give them the vision and the and just the the big picture and then trust that they can execute on it yeah, it's like so ironic how the more power you have in your role, sometimes the less control you feel like you have because there's so so many variables at any given time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like um, though I like the sort of big view, like the fact that I can touch the parts of it that you know. When I was a senior editor at Vanity Fair, editing stories and working with writers, it was great, but I had nothing to do with the visuals. So mm-hmm. I love the fact that I get to put my hand a little bit in all of it now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what was your girl boss moment um, just in the last week or so? And a girl boss moment can be anything. It's such a cheesy name. It just, we just landed it. on it somehow. But yeah. it was just, you know, when was the time in your week that you felt like you did something for yourself and not because you were obligated necessarily? I don't know. I think my girl boss moment might, perhaps this is a sad <laughs> reflection on the chaos of my life, but I love <laughs> the chaos of my life and I really feel very full. Like my life feels very full and um, for the most part satisfying. I think my girl boss moment is that moment I get on the subway after I drop the kids off at school. And I get on the subway and I have a 40-minute commute. And that sounds like hell to some people. But honestly, sitting on that subway, having successfully gotten the kids to school, which feels like a giant achievement every day, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and sitting on the subway and reading the pay- the you know my phone, basically just reading all the things that I've yeah. downloaded – is my sort of Zen moment of preparing for the day. And I look at my calendar. My Outlook calendar is like my compass. Um, mm-hmm. I literally put things in there like, uh, yeah, just think reminder to call my aunt. I mean, I just, that's my whole, oh, yeah. constantly checking my calendar. Um, feeling that's the one I feel the most in charge of my day. I feel like I've successfully dropped off the kids. I gave them a kiss and I'm off to, you know, charge forward. Um, and it feels yeah. really empowering, strangely, just to sit on the subway and read my news. That sounds really peaceful, actually. Anne, thank you so much for joining Thanks so much, me Sophia. on the podcast. It was so nice to talk to you. And let's catch up when you're in L.A. next. Absolutely. And now for your girl boss moments. Girl boss moments. Girl boss moments. Girl boss moments are a time in your week when you feel like you're in control of your life. That can mean getting a raise, making a work presentation, or having some quality family time. Whatever it is to you, you can send in your hashtag girl boss moments 
at hashtag girlbossmoment via Twitter and Instagram. We'll pick our favorites, read them on the podcast, and one will end up on girlboss.com each week. Bria Currington says, secured a new client and accomplished everything on my to-do list today. M says, another raise is a great way to start my week. Happy Monday. Caitlin Owens, K. Bowen's photo, says, finished a project about expressions of femininity after a 35-hour day for my final photojournalism class. Holy. Kayla at Kayla Boetcher says, successfully shot four photo sessions this weekend. I fall in love with photography more and more every shoot. C. Jolie says, finally registered a business after a year plus of writing down ideas. Yeah, me too. Linda says, ask for a transfer to New York and a raise. Got both plus got offered a promotion. Damn. Emily at Emily Annalise says, traveled to a client's location today and had a girl boss moment when I realized our meeting was a girls club of nine smart, powerful ladies. And last week we mentioned that we're launching a new segment called Girl Boss Hotline. The Girl Boss Hotline can be found by picking up your phone and dialing 1-844-GIRLBOSS. You dial in, you ask your question, and I answer it. It's really simple. So please call 1-844-GIRLBOSS, ask your question, maybe even like an observation, just some bits of wisdom. You can leave those too, and we'll play them on the podcast. 1-844-GIRLBOSS. We're all going to jam out right there. The Girl Boss Hotline. Thanks, guys. That was another episode of Girl Boss Radio. We'll be back next week. Please tune in. Our producer is Shara Morris. Thanks also to Odelia Rubin, Kristen Meinzer, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. To stay in touch with all things Girl Boss, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Girl Boss. You can sign up for a newsletter and read original content published almost daily at girlboss.com. And you can follow me at Sophia Amoruso, and pretty much everywhere. I hope Girl Boss Radio helps you to achieve your goals, help us achieve our goals. Subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it, tell a stranger about it, quote us on Twitter, and like us on Instagram, and all that stuff. But, you know, generally, just help us grow our audience, because that's, that's, like, important here. And thanks also to the band Phases for our theme song. I'm Sophia Amoruso. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>